Get a balanced analysis on both domestic and international topics within the framework of cross-cultural comparisons. This is Dialogue. Hello and welcome to Dialogue. On the first day of the UN Climate Change Conference in Dubai, known as COP28, delegates agreed on the operationalization of the Loss and Damage Fund to help the world's poorest and most vulnerable countries hit by climate change. At the same time, the impacts of climate change are shaping the lives of over 370 million indigenous peoples around the world, which comprises less than 5% of the world's population, but protects some 80% of the planet's global biodiversity. What's the significance of the loss and damage fund to go further in tackling the surging climate threat? How can we fairly evaluate the obligations of the developed world and the rights of the global south? With these questions and more in mind, in the first part, I'm joined by Maria Fernanda Espinosa, former president of the UN General Assembly. In the second half, I will talk to Ms. Hendo Omaro Ibrahim, president of the Association for Indigenous Women and Peoples of Chad, about the story of her people and their cause in fighting climate change. That's our topic. I'm Xu Qinduo. Welcome to Dialogue, Madame. First of all, I wonder, you know, like, uh, what do you make of the COP28? Some say this is the last opportunity for us to effectively tackle climate change. Do you agree or disagree with such an idea? Well, it's a pleasure with, to be with you today, and it is true. I have been uh, attending uh, the COP in Dubai, and uh, obviously the negotiation is not easy. There are many pending issues. Every study, every assessment, every report, the IPCC, the uh, UNEP emissions gap report, basically they all say the same. We are off track in meeting the goals of the Paris Agreement. Uh, only last year, uh, the temperatures uh, uh, increased in 1.2%. This is leading us to a three degrees Celsius increase in temperature instead of a decrease. Uh, and um, so we need to accelerate action, both on the mitigation and, and the adaptation front. We need to remain in the 1.5 degrees as the Paris Agreement say. And basically 1.5 degrees is not a target. It is the top limit for humanity to continue to exist. So uh, what the expectations of COP28 in Dubai are high. We are hoping to have uh, the necessary resources, the necessary frameworks, the necessary ambition that is needed at this point, because we are not in a climate change moment, we are in a climate emergency moment and uh, the window of opportunity is closing. It's not that we have uh, a decade ahead of us, we have the ne next five to seven years to really curve emissions by 2030 in almost half and by 2050 to become a net zero world. And of course, we know uh, about the 2060 target that China has set for itself uh, as well. Mm -hmm. The neutrality uh, 2060 for the China target. Uh, well, you mentioned about ambition. You know, the Paris Agreement, as you said, 2015 set to limit the global average temperature increase to 1.5 degrees. But then, you know, as we witnessed over the past years, the pandemic, the conflicts in different parts of the world, 
uh, we do see there's a now talk of a resume that limited to two degrees or even three uh, degrees Celsius. Uh, some would say probably that's somehow you know, a compromise forced upon us. As you said, do you see there's a lack of ambition or somehow there's a timid response to the crisis we're facing? Well, uh, again, the issue of 1.5 is a scientific limit target. It's not, let's go to two degrees Celsius increase. It's not possible because it means that the sea level will rise in a way that would basically wipe out many of the coastal countries and, and make communities suffer and lose billions in infrastructure and have massive displacement of people. And um, we uh, decided in Cancun many years ago that the fund, the Green Climate Fund, uh, would have $100 billion per year starting in 2020. The money is not there yet. And it's a symbolic number because we know and recent studies have shown that the developing countries need at least $2.4 trillion per year uh, to uh, meet uh, their Paris Agreement commitments, both on the adaptation and the mitigation front. So uh, I think that uh, what is expected from COP28 is to be up to the task, to be as ambitious as the emergency, the climatic emergency requires. And, and for that, we need a very strong and bold global stock take decision because for the first time, we are in the midpoint of the Paris Agreement. We need to have a fully operational loss and damage fund that was established in Sharm el-Sheikh last year. So the operation of the fund was agreed already in COP28. Uh, there are uh, pledges, initial pledges, or 400 million, but of course, it's still insufficient. Uh, well, as you said, you know, uh, lost and the damage fund, uh, you know, uh, I think action implementation is important. I guess it's a good thing to see that, you know, there are pledges and also real, like uh, the fund, you know, of $700 million to this fund, lost and damage fund for these most vulnerable countries in the developing world. And furthermore, we do see UAE, the host of COP, uh, COP28, has also launched this uh, $30 billion uh, climate-focused investment vehicle. Uh, what's your response to that? I mean, oh, it's far from the $2.4 trillion uh, needed to you know, deal with the climate change, but it's uh, some progress? It is progress, and uh, we have to say that um, we have to understand there is a package of decisions that are negotiated in the framework of the UN Convention uh, and the Conference of the Parties. So we expect a new target for adaptation because we have one that is very clear for mitigation, which is the 1.5 degrees, which is the 20 gigatons that need to be deleted from the emission side uh, so we can meet uh, the Paris Agreement goals. But on the adaptation front, we don't have the numbers. We don't have the goals. We don't know exactly what needs to be done. And this is also going to come up hopefully out of COP28. And the other part is basically what you were mentioning, uh, the presidential action agenda, the pledges, uh, the declarations, the 30 billion, which is an important and meaningful amount of resources for developing countries. Whatever we say we're going to do uh, needs to be tracked uh, um, 
to make sure that at the end of the day, they are, they are really delivered. The commitments are delivered. And the package of negotiations are still in the making because uh, the negotiation is still ongoing. What has been you know, put under spotlight is uh, really the end of for the uh, consumption of uh, fossil fuel or the transition to the renewables. You know, the president of COP28, Al Jaber, made some controversial comments about uh, facing out fossil fuels. Uh, you know, basically, his idea is like uh, it's unrealistic to face out the fossil fuels in a certain period of time, and then there are some criticism. You know, what do you make of these uh, comments uh, by the head of COP28? You know, some people would say probably, you know, it's, uh, it's probably unrealistic to reduce uh, to the point of zero uh, of the consumption of, uh, of the fossil energy here. But it's a, it's a task we need to accomplish. I mean, how do you balance, how do you achieve such a target at the same time we know there is a mounting difficulty? Well, we, we saw this debate happening since Glasgow. I, I, uh, you know, I think the world remembers that there, are, there were a, a group of countries basically uh, asking for facing down and not facing out. But the science and the evidence uh, we have right now really calls for urgent urgently facing out fossil fuels. And, and that's where we need to go because emissions continue to increase uh, in spite of all the commitments, in, in spite of the Paris Agreement of 28 COPs, all the declarations we have signed, the nat national determined contributions, entire cities and entire countries devastated because of climate-related events, hundreds of millions of climate-related displaced persons. I was uh, recently in Dubai with, uh, with the High Commissioner on Refugees. The numbers of climate refugees are increasing steadily around the world. Food security is in risk. Water is in risk. So we need to act in a very ambitious, bold way. So I, I think that we should keep the phrase facing out fossil fuels and have a plan to achieve that. Mm -hmm. You know, China is, is the largest contributor to the emissions. At the same time, China, of course, is the largest producer of goods around the world. At the same time, it's also in the leading position in terms of transitioning to renewables. You know, if you look at uh, the EVs, the solar panels, you know, wind turbines, China in a, in a position, I would say, of strength to export and, of course, not only transitioning inside uh, domestically, but also probably uh, helping other countries uh, to achieve uh, the goal of uh, cutting emissions. So what kind of a role do you uh, see for a country like China here? Well, I, I think that China is one of the most important, important players in the climate discussion. Uh, number one, because it's the first producer of, uh, of renewable energies around the world, because uh, it is a country that also uh, has been able to reduce poverty levels at the same time as making a, a very strong and, and intentional investment in renewable energy and innovation. Uh, it is not only about producing renewable energy, but it is about energy efficiency and storage of energy, which is uh, one of the critical issues. Uh, and I think that I think China is in, a be in the 
best position uh, to support other countries to uh, really share uh, the technologies, the knowledge, the experience of their pathway uh, to a renewable energy future, to a low carbon future. China is uh, well placed to be a country that would be uh, leading the chart on this uh, energy transition that we're talking about and doing so in company or in support of uh, other developing countries. So um, it's a key player. And of course, in the equation uh, of uh, of uh, high emitting countries, uh, China is a very important uh, emitting country. So the efforts that China is doing right now, uh, we have seen also with great hope and uh, I would say satisfaction, uh, the recent agreement on climate signed by the United States and China during the last visit of President Xi and President Biden. Uh, we see that climate change can unite peoples and countries. Uh, even if the situation is difficult, it can be a bridge for good diplomacy, uh, for cooperation and mutual understanding. Climate has been perhaps the issue that has united these two important countries in the current geopolitics. Let's have a short break. We'll be back right after this. Ideas matter. Ideas matter. This is Dialogue. The impacts of climate change are shaping the lives of over 370 million indigenous peoples around the world, which comprises less than 5% of the world's population, but protects some 80% of the planet's global biodiversity. As the world leaders gather in Dubai for the 28th UN Climate Talks, indigenous representatives are calling for more drastic actions to protect our vital ecosystem. Among them is Ms. Hendo Omaro Abraham, president of the Association for Indigenous Women and Peoples of Chad, who has been speaking out for her people with the hope to help them battle the climate crisis. Today, we are very honored to have Ms. Hendo Omaro Abraham with us to tell the story of her people and their cause. Welcome to Dialogue, Ms. Abraham. You know, to help our viewers you know, better understand your views on climate change and indigenous peoples, uh, I think it's important for them to learn where you come from. Could you share with us more about Chad, your country, and your life experience as an individual from the Bororo tribe? Sure, thank you for the invitation. So my name is Hindu Umaru Ibrahim. I am from Chad. I am from Bororo people who are a indigenous peoples of Chad. So my people are nomadic pastoralists, we are cattle holders, so we follow the rain. When it's rain, we have the pastures, our cattle follow. So we can walk over years a thousand of kilometers just after the rain and after the pastures. So my people live between Chad, Cameroon, Niger, Nigeria, Central African Republic, and even Sudan. So before the colonization, it used to be all our land. And now after the colonization, they cut us into the pieces. And then I found myself born in Chad. And that's the reason why I'm an indigenous Chadian woman. Well, I guess, you know, that is uh, why important, uh, you know, uh, the, the climate change is so important to your people. Because, you know, for most of the people, if they follow the rain, you know, to herd. So is that the case that climate change is becoming probably an increasingly important issue for your community. Right, that's true. So 
climate change for my community, we are not reading it in a book or watching it in the TV. It is a daily reality of our people. We are seeing the rain change a lot. The season change. The rainy season last year come a big rain that flood everything. Flood the crops, flood the home of the peoples, and we ended up with a food insecurity. And this year, we do not have enough of the rain, and it's going to be a drought. And when it is a drought, there is no pastures, it will be no crops, and of course, it will be ending up with the food insecurity. In addition, people are fighting each other to get access to the natural resources. Then it becomes a conflict between the communities. And that is very sad because it gives an opportunity to a terrorist group to take a place because people are poor and then they come invaded the place, they terrorize the peoples, and then it's become again another crisis. And at the end of the day, you have like man who can migrate and then they leave the women and children alone at the community. So climate change is a reality that emphasizes all the social issues in my home country. Obviously, in the fight against climate change, you know, we know uh, there's um, you know, rising voices against the use of the reliance of fossil fuel. Uh, I know that you know, apart from ending the reliance on fossil fuel, uh, what other proposals will you, or do you bring to the uh, table at COP28? So for us, of course, the big problem of the climate is the fossil fuel. We have to phase out fossil fuel. There is no any excuse because the world developed a lot of renewable energy. You can find that even in my nomadic pastoralist community. For those who have a cell phone, you can have a small solar panel that they will move with it and they can charge their cell phone. So if the solar panel reach my community who is nomadic very far from all the development so we can have a solution so we must end the fossil fuel and the decision of the cop 28 must have the face out the fossil fuel secondly we are all celebrating the funding for the loss and damage but the governance of the loss and damage must include an indigenous people's seat at the tables, then we can take the decisions with them. We want to have the observer role, but the active observer role. Thirdly, on the mitigation, so mitigation and just transition. So just transition must be a reality, equitable for the peoples. Just transition cannot be the name of the greenwashing to extract all the mineral of all the biodiversity who are in the land of indigenous peoples and create another crisis. So it must be equitable, respect the rights, respect the land and give the, those who do not have the power. And finally, we wanted to have a direct access finance. They talk about a lot of finance for nature, for health, for water in this COP. But all those finance going only to the government, it must go directly to the indigenous peoples that are implementing a real project on the ground to fight climate change. But then, you know, when it comes to this, uh, you mentioned earlier, but basically, you know, this is financial, less financial payment program from the global north to the global south when it comes to the loss and damage fund. This is a step forward, let's say, uh, in that, uh, mitigating the disasters from climate change. Um, but you are saying that's not enough. 
right? I think it's not enough. It is the first step. We have to do first step. And this is the first step. And it is the responsibility of developed world who must pay because they are the one who use all the fossil fuel. They have the ecological depth of the global south. They have the ecological depth of the indigenous peoples. They must pay for that to repair the nature. We are not asking them a charity. We are not asking them that to give us money just like this. We are asking them to pay back their responsibility that they damage the land and then we are losing all our life and livelihood. And it has to be simple. Why they cannot just do that if they are caring about the planet? Anyway, climate change is impacting us today, but it's going also to hit them because climate change do not have any frontiers, do not respect any visa, do not respect any boundary, and don't need ticket to travel. Well, you have met uh, uh, global leaders, you know, recently as well as uh, at COP28. Uh, do you think your message is well received by the, let's say, rich nations, leaders from the rich nations, like uh, whether they are ready uh, to do their job or to do their part to help deal with uh, the consequences of climate change in the global south, uh, in particular in indigenous uh, uh, peoples? So, indigenous peoples have been participating on the climate negotiations since Rio. We are getting a small, small win. And we got some win in the Paris Agreement, five references on our knowledge, on our rights, and in our participations. That have been very important. And then here at the COP28, we come back to ask them with the same voice. They have to listen to what we are saying. They have to give us the space to sit in the tables and discuss with them. When they talk about all the climate issues, they're talking about our land, they're talking about our resources, it is our home. Did they listen? We are going to see that at the outcome of the COP28. I'm very, very looking forward to all what we are asking for, the permanency, the direct access finance, the just and renewable energy uh, that can respect our rights and to end the fossil fuel out. So those are the results we are waiting. We talk them, we ask them, and we will be holding them accountable. They must deliver at the outcome of this COP. In previous interview, you said uh, that many of your people have pinned their hope on you to speak out for them uh, on the issue of climate change. You know, uh, this is a lot of responsibility, heavy responsibility, I would say. How do you feel taking up this challenge? You are completely right. It is a big responsibility to speak on behalf of the people who do not know what I'm talking about when I say a COP. They do not know what is the conference of the party. They do not know all the uh, UNFCCC, all the uh, acronym that we are using here. All what they know, they know if the rain didn't come, they are going to suffer. Or if the rain come a lot, they are going to suffer. That's the only thing that the peoples know in my community. So what we are I'm doing here is to come and give them justice, represent them, and go back home, tell them all the result. It is a very heavy responsibility. Sometimes I just go there and they're all happy, they surround me, they come around me, they're like, oh, you are going there, you are defending us. And when I know 
there is no direct access to finance, there is no fast solution to help them. It's more frustrating, heavy for me, then I have to stand up and just like do it for them. And I will never give up to my community or to the indigenous communities around the world. I will be always standing up for them. Well, speak of that, you know, I wonder in your opinion or based on your experience, what are the greatest obstacles, you know, in the way uh, to achieve progress against climate change? I think the global obstacle is there is no action on the ground that people are doing. There is more a talks. There is little of action. Remember the hundred billions that have been adopted in Copenhagen. We are every year have to shout as all the non-state actors. The developing country have to ask for and it have to be in the tables before that they reach the hundred billions. But now the climate disaster needs a thousand of billions, it needs a trillions of funding. That is a big obstacle. We cannot anymore accept the talks, the commitment without the real action that is following. We do not have time. We are keeping telling them we are in urgency. We don't want to be in a non-reverse. When we reach the 1.5, in my community, we will be having more than 55 and 60 degrees Celsius, and we will be becoming all climate refugee. We will be losing our dignity, our land. Our people will not have any place, and this is not acceptable. Some people, indigenous peoples on the islands, they will lose completely their lands. There will be no one, and this is not acceptable. So it has to be an action, and action is lacking in all those climate discussions um, you know I if I'm right I think that you were a college student and then gradually you're becoming more active you know in your community in the fight against climate change you know you bring people together to find ways for example for people to receive you know alert or changes uh, for weather forecasts uh, so tell us your stories you know what makes you uh, you you are now so I get born as an indigenous woman so I already get born as an activist. So in my community, when I see how they're struggling with the climate change issue, they are losing their land, they're losing their resources, and they have to fight every single day to get their rights. It's normal that I just stand up and fight for them. So when I start going to school as a young girl, I have been discriminated as an indigenous girl. And that also helped me to just stand up and fight for my right, fight for the right of the girl who have my age. And I understood I cannot talk about the human right without talking about the environment right, because we live and depend from the environment. If our environment and our human rights are not respected together, so we cannot fight climate change. And then I stand it up with my community and on behalf of my community and do what I do now. And as I taught you, I don't have any other choice than to stand and fight for them. Thank you, Ibrahim. Thank you for speaking with us. With that, we come to the end for today's discussion. Many thanks to our guests. I'm Yu Chindo. Thanks for being with us. See you next time.